generation, you know what these two boys are doing. Uh, you also might know if you're not my generation. But if you're my generation, this, this is a picture from the 1960s. What's taking place is, is that these two boys who are in their baseball uniforms with the bat between them are picking sides. Now, this is how we used to do it when I was a kid. You take a baseball bat and you throw it up in the air and the other person, other captain had to catch it. And then once he caught it, then you did this. You know, until you finally reach the top, and whoever got to grab the top of it, uh, that was uh, the guy that got to pick first, or got to be, their team got to, he got to pick whether they were home or visitors or whatever. But that was how we used to choose up sides in baseball uh, years ago. Uh, choosing sides is a fact of life. We choose sides all the time. Uh, and, and while there are circumstances when avoiding or refusing to pick a side is the wise and prudent thing to do. I'm sure, you know, if you're married, uh, you know if there's, a, if there's a problem with your spouse's family, you usually choose not to get involved. Uh, you know, if you do get involved, you find out very quickly that may not be the wise and prudent thing to do. Uh, so you kind of, so there are times when choosing sides is the wise, when not choosing sides is the wise and prudent thing to do. But most of the time, Many of the choices that we are forced to make simply cannot be avoided. And in those instances, if we persist in not making a choice, in many cases, a default choice is thrust upon us. Uh, you think, well, I'm not going to choose. Well, then you automatically end up, this automatically happens. Sometimes a choice is thrust upon, this, upon us. In the context of our text this morning, the Pharisees are continuing in attack mode. They've been in attack mode ever since we started reading and in, in, started in chapter 12. They've been in attack mode. And previously, they've collided with Jesus regarding the proper way of observing the Sabbath. We're not going to go all through that again, but, but Jesus has really put these Pharisees in a... In a uh, uh, in Texas, we might call it a hissy fit. I mean, they are, they are in a full-blown hissy fit here. Jesus has upset their traditions uh, and, and has turned their traditions topsy-turvy. And these traditions needed to be turned because the Pharisees' traditions had come to the place where they superseded God's Word. And the traditions that, uh, that they were imposing upon the Sabbath had transformed the Sabbath from a blessing that God gave the people of Israel as a blessing and as a gift, and they had transformed that blessing and gift and had made the Sabbath day become a burden for them. And the Pharisees, as we saw through chapter 12, they had listened to Jesus' powerful exposition of the written word. Uh, he explains why in their mind, they, they thought he has, he has broken the Sabbath, and he explains to them by using three passages of Scripture that their thinking is, is wrong-headed. Not only that, they have watched the powerful demonstration of his spoken word as he heals the man with a withered hand just by speaking, and they are forced to choose a side. And they do. And the side that they choose is the side of evil. We found that out in verse 14 when he says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. How to destroy him. Net Bible translates it how to assassinate him. They've chosen a side. But the Pharisees are not finished. This incident with the, with the Sabbath is, is not the final say. 
Uh, when you look back into our text, you notice that it begins with the word then. Now, oftentimes that word then is used as a chronological or a close chronological marker. It's kind of like saying, you know, uh, you know, we went to the baseball game and, you know, this, this is what happened in the first inning. Then this is what happened in the second inning. So you have this close chronological marker. That's not necessarily the case here, and, and, and it's probably not the case here. That word then is not being used necessarily as a chronological marker, though it certainly could be, but rather it is being used to present another example. Here is another example of the Pharisees' hatred and opposition to Jesus. And in fact, we see it so. Notice in verse 22 that the miracle itself doesn't really interest Matthew. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, we're not told who it was, he was blind, he was mute, was brought to him, and he healed him. So that he, so the man spoke and saw. There's no, there's no details. We're not given all these details as we're given in some of the other miracles of Jesus. Where he might, he might touch them, he might say something to them, uh, he might... Uh, uh, spit on the ground, make some mud, put it on their eyes. Uh, you know, you have a lot of details in a lot of the miracles that Jesus does. Here, there's no details. It's, there was this guy, he was demon-possessed, he was mute, uh, he was blind, Jesus saw him, Jesus healed him, bing, bang, boom, that's it. That's it. The, the miracle is stated with no detail, and it's stated kind of in a matter-of-fact way. The thing that interests Matthew is the confrontation that this miracle produced. And, and that's Matthew's focus. He fo- as he focuses on the Pharisees, and once more these Pharisees are engaged with battle. It's not the miracle that interests Matthew. Again, he just, he just states it. There's a man, he's demon-oppressed, demon he's blind, he's mute. Jesus sees him, he's brought, he's brought to Jesus, Jesus heals him, the man speaks, the man can see. And so the miracle is not, the, 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 as we're going to see here, the amazement is not in the miracle, as we're going to find out here in just a few moments. And so this morning as we look at this passage, there's three aspects. We're going to look at the, the consternation, just how the Pharisees, respond, uh, uh, the Pharisees respond to this, and their stoking of unbelief. And that's in verses 23 and 24. Then we're going to look at the confrontation. Jesus doesn't let their slander go. Jesus doesn't ignore what they're saying about Him. Jesus confronts them. And in that confrontation, He lets them know the, sen- the senselessness, the wrongheadedness, the senselessness of their claim. They're, 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 they're the ones who are nuts. Their claim has no grounding whatsoever. And then as, as we come to the conclusion of it, Jesus draws His argument to a conclusion where basically He tells them the superiority of, him, of Himself. We see the superiority of Jesus in verses 29 through 32. So, so let's begin by looking at the consternation, the, the stoking of the unbelief there in verses 23 and 24. The emphasis in verse 23 is the reaction of the crowd. So verse 22, Matthew tells us in, in kind of a matter-of-fact, no-nonsense, no-detailed way, there's this demon-oppressed man, he's blind, he can't speak. They bring him to Jesus, Jesus heals him, Now he can speak, now he can see. And here now we see the reaction of the crowd. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be 
the son of David. They are utterly amazed. They are wowed. Just, whoa. Whoa. But the question reveals to us more about this amazement. The interrogative participle that is used. In Greek, you can ask a question in two ways. And depending upon the particle, you know whether or not a yes answer is expected or a no answer is expected. Uh, so if I, like if I told you, the sun is going to rise in the east tomorrow, I expect a yes answer from you. Now, some of you that are more theologically inclined would say, well, that depends on whether or not Jesus, you know, you know, you know but it is going to rise tomorrow, okay? It is going to rise tomorrow. That is an expected yes answer. This question, the question that's used here, expresses a negative response. In other words, you could state this question. Now, again, when they say son of David, son of David is a messianic title. So the text itself says son of David. We're going to use the word Messiah because that will track better for us. But the son of David and, and Messiah, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's a messianic title. This is kind of the question that they're asking. This one can't be Messiah, can he? In fact, the use of the word hautas is translated, and it's not translated this one in our text. It says, can this be? They, they, they didn't translate it in the ESV, but you could translate it this way. Can this one, and I think that's important, can this one be the Messiah? The use of the word hatas uh, seems to imply that the amazement is not sourced in the miracle, but rather that Jesus is the one who performed it. Can this one? It would be like saying, Greg was the MVP of Super Bowl 53? Greg? Greg was the MVP of Super Bowl? Greg quarterback the... Greatest football, greatest college football team, the Ohio State Buckeyes to victory. Greg did that. Sorry, Jackie. You know, uh, Gre- uh, sorry, Ethan. You know, Greg did that. Greg did that. It's not so much that they are amazed at here this man who is demon oppressed, who can't speak, who can't see. Now, just, just by him coming to Jesus, now he can see. Now he can speak. That's not what they're amazed about. What they're amazed about is, Jesus? Is this the Messiah that we've been promised? In other words, their amazement, while indicating a slight possibility of belief, was primarily one of unbelief. Is this one? This one. And they didn't even say Jesus. This one can't be the son of David, can he? So, the question is out there. The people are scratching their heads. It's primarily a question of unbelief, but there is ever so slightly a possibility of belief there. I mean, Jesus, really? Jesus, really? And the Pharisees cannot let that stand. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, they're speaking to the crowd, it is only by Beelzebul, 
the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. After hearing the question, the Pharisees are forced to explain what just happened. There's no doubt a miracle has occurred. No doubt. They, they can't deny that. They can't deny the action. So what are they going to do? They're going to attack the one who did the action. They're going, to, they're going to do what we are all used, especially in this political season, that we're all used to. They're going to spin it. They're going to spin it. I mean, in the, I don't know about you. I, I'm off track here, and I, I am going to stay within the right boundaries that I need. It's amazing to me, whoever is speaking, how you, you can look at one incident and come up with completely two different stories. And that's because politicians and their handlers are skilled at spinning. And that's exactly what is happening here. These Pharisees can't deny what's taken place. But what they can do is try to spin what took place to their advantage. And their response has to accomplish two objectives. They have to squash the slightest belief in Jesus as Messiah. It's there. It's it's small. But it's a possibility. And they have to stoke the unbelief of the absurdity of Jesus as Messiah. Because again, remember the question is, can this one... Can this one be Messiah? Can, can he? So they recognize there's a, possi- there's a possibility they might get turned. But 75% of their question or 80% or whatever, the vast majority of their question is kind of, no, not Jesus. It, it can't be Jesus. So how do they meet their objectives? The same way it is accomplished today. Hurl a vicious and and an unsubstantiated accusation. They don't attack the action. They don't even explain the action. They attack the person that did it. You you, you attack the individual. We see it all the time in politics. You attack the individual. And that's exactly what they're doing here. How they're going to accomplish this is by attacking the individual. And look at how they do it. Look at the text again. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that hautos. They translate it this man, which is an acceptable translation. But it would be this one. It's the same word, hautos. This one casts out demons. Cast out demons. How do they attack? They show contempt for Jesus, for him personally, by using the word hautas. You wonder if this one is the Messiah. You got, you, you, you're kind of amazed that, that this one could possibly be Messiah. Let me tell you about this one. This one does what he does by the power of Satan. Beelzebul is just another term for Satan. This one does what he does by the power, you know, this one that you're in a maze thinking, can this one be the Messiah? Let me tell you about this one. This one does what he does by the power of Satan. And they also charge, as we've said, that, that, that they charge that his power is diabolical and not divine. This, his power is not divine. What he's doing here is not a miracle of God. What he's doing here is trying to lead you down a false path. And actually, Satan, his power is sourced in Satan. His power is not... Don't, don't, there's no way he could be Messiah. 
And this miracle that you've seen, well, yeah, it's obviously a miracle, but the one behind the miracle is not Yahweh. The one behind the miracle is Beelzebul. That's who's behind this miracle. That's the power that he's received. So they have this stoking of unbelief. But Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't walk away. Jesus doesn't say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Jesus does not ignore their slander because they are attacking the character of God. He addresses it, and in verses 25 through 28, Matthew relates to us the confrontation and the senselessness of their claim. Jesus demonstrates how nonsensical their accusation is by stating an undeniable principle, an undeniable principle, and then providing proof by means of three first-class condition if clauses. Here's what I mean by if clause. Look at verse 26. And if Satan cast. Look at verse 27. And if I cast. Look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit. There's three if clauses there. He uses three first-class condition if clauses. That, 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 that is the logical argument of the principle that he's going to lay out for us uh, there in verse 25. And the principle is there. Look at verse 25 where he says this, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If you've, uh, history of, uh, if, you know, if you've studied American history, you know Lincoln referred to that during the Civil War. No house divided against itself can stand. Basically, the principle is this. It is impossible for a kingdom, a city, or a family to exist if it's divided against itself. If you've got a nation divided against itself, eventually that nation's not going to stand. If you've got family divided against itself, that family unit is not going to stand. It's it's not. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not times that we all have trouble, but if you have this, this great animosity and hatred and division... The principle is a divided house will not stand. Uh, And and so that's the undeniable principle. We've seen it. We've experienced it. That's it. And so Jesus begins by coming back to them and giving this, this principle which cannot be refuted. And then he takes that principle and builds his argument. He gives the three if clauses. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, And if Satan cast out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Verse 26 is simply this. It makes no sense for Satan to heal because his kingdom would not survive since he would be working against himself. Makes sense. Jesus says, A house divided against itself, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And it makes no sense for Satan to heal because if Satan is not in the business of making humanity's life better. Satan is in the business of tempting us with things that are pleasurable, ensnaring us in that temptation, then enslaving us in that temptation where our lives become broken and miserable. That's Satan's goal for humanity. That's his goal for humanity. It started with Adam and Eve. And it continues on in your life and in my life. To me, he, 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 he tempts us with the baubles and beads and pleasures of this world that sin is pleasurable for a season, as James says, but in the end it results in death. Sin is always fun. 
If it wasn't fun, it wouldn't be tempting. I mean, would Satan ever say, hey, you need a root canal? You need a root canal. Come on with me. Let's go to the dentist and go get a root canal with no Novocaine. Come on. None of us would be tempted by that. Why? Because it's painful. And Satan knows as human beings, as, as we heard last Wednesday night, Satan knows as human beings that, that what every human being, whether saved or not, seeks to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Every, every person on the face of this earth seeks to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Satan's temptations are tempting because they're pleasurable. They're pleasurable, but they end in destruction. And so Satan is not in the business of healing. And Jesus says, it makes no sense. Do you realize what you're saying here? It makes no sense for Satan to heal because his kingdom would not survive since he would be working against himself. That's the first if clause. The second if clause is found in verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. In this one, Jesus says the accusation makes no sense because of the inconsistency of, of, of their evaluation. Now, there's, we're not going to go into... There's two ideas of exactly... In fact, there's a journal, journal article that is in the Journal of... Uh, Biblical New Testament Studies, I think that's the full title of it, uh, there, that says that basically when he's taught, I mean, that identifies and asks uh, 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 sons, your sons cast, who, who are your sons? And in this journal article, they make the argument that they're the disciples. And I didn't, I just got to, didn't really, I couldn't, I couldn't get the journal article unless I paid for it, and I didn't want to pay for it. Uh, so I went cheapo depot. So I, so I found out what I could about it, in other words. And so that's a possibility. The majority opinion, and, and I, I want to read it more to see, but, but whether it's this one or this one I'm getting ready to tell you, it, it, the, the principle is still the same. Most people understand this passage in this way, that if, if the sons are the Jewish exorcists, and we know that there were Jewish exorcists from the book of Acts. Remember when, when, when uh, Paul uh, and, and, the, and the seven sons of Scepha and uh, they are trying to cast out the demons, and uh, the, 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 the man that is demon-possessed, he, he basically takes on all seven of these, these guys and whoops them, you know, you know, just gives them a good old, good old whooping. And, uh, uh, and, you know, and the demon says, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? Uh, so there were Jewish exorcists. So, so if, if these sons are the Jewish exorcists, then the Pharisees would have to admit that their sons do this by the power of Satan. If Again, look, look at the text again. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, Beelzebul, by whom do your sons... And again, the idea of sons, the idea of, uh, 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 you know, they're all Abraham's sons. Uh, so it's not saying that these are literally the, the physical descendants of the Pharisees. These are uh, Jewish exorcists or maybe disciples of the Pharisees. He says, if, if that's the power that I do it, how do your sons do it? How do your sons do it? They're inconsistent in who they are. The reason why they're attributing the power to Beelzebul for Jesus' exorcism, we all know why. They don't like them. They don't like them. They want to kill them. Now theirs do it by the power of God. But Jesus, 
He does it by the power of Satan. Well, how, how do you know this? How can you tell? Well, we don't like Jesus. We don't like Jesus. We, we, don't, we don't like what he says and who he says he is. We, we don't like that. And, and the fact that Jesus says that, that if, if the sons of the Jewish exorcist, then, then, the, then the Pharisees would have to admit that their sons do this by the power of Satan. And the fact that they do not make that assertion brings judgment upon them. Again, he says, and if, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. You freely admit that they do it by the power of God. So if they do it by the power of God, why don't I do it by the power of God? They're judging you. Their very actions judge you. So Jesus, may, you, you, your thinking, your evaluations are inconsistent. The only reason why you think this way is because you don't like me. You hate me. You're against me. Because everybody else that's doing this, you're saying it's done by the power of God. Why am I the exception? Why am I the exception? But wouldn't you, wouldn't you have hated to get in a debate with Jesus? <laughs> I mean, if there was a high school debate team when Jesus was growing up, I would have hated to be the other guy on the side of that. But, but that, that's his second, his second if clause. Now look at verse 28. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon, uh, has come upon you. Jesus says, Since my power is not demonic, but divine. Because it's, you're, you're giving me an inconsistent argument. You're giving me an inconsistent argument. I mean, Satan doesn't work against himself, so your argument is foolish. Satan doesn't heal. He destroys. I'm the only one who you think does this by the power of Satan. Everybody else, you think it's done by the power of God. So he says, if I do cast out demons, and, and I do cast them out by the power of God, since his power is not demonic, demonic but divine, it is evidence that the kingdom of God is no longer an anticipated event, but an event that has been arrived. And by arrived, I, be, I mean inaugurated. It's been inaugurated. The fact that I am doing this is letting you know that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Now, we've talked about that. that that's, that's progressive dispensationalism. That the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And the Pharisees are not ignorant of this truth. Keep your place there in Matthew and go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. You can't get much more plainer than this. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, and look at verse 20. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, and verse 20. Being asked, this is Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered him. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or, or there. In other words, you're sitting here looking for all these signs for the kingdom of God. These great revelations, these great cosmic events. He says, that's not how the kingdom of God is going to come. It's not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's not talking about inside them. The kingdom of God is, you're looking at the kingdom of God. 
You're looking at the kingdom of God. Look and see what I do. Look at how, how I fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Look at the eye. Heal the sick. I call the, cause the blind to see, the lame to walk. Listen to me as I teach and the power with which I do so. All you've got to do is open your eyes and see it. The kingdom of God is here. It's been inaugurated. And the Pharisees don't want anything to do with it because it's not a kingdom they can control. It's not a kingdom they can control. It's a kingdom they have to submit to. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Now, as Jesus concludes this confrontation with the Pharisees, He does so by unpacking this last point. This last point, which is the fact that the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is being... Now, the kingdom of God is not completely fulfilled. And it won't be completely fulfilled until Jesus comes back and sits on the physical throne of His father, David. Jesus is seated uh, at the throne in heaven. And we've already talked about how that is equated with David's throne and, 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 and the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. But the final fulfillment, the, the ultimate fulfillment, the climax of the kingdom is not going to happen until Jesus physically returns to this earth. But in the meantime, Jesus is making clear to them as He unpacks this that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Jesus makes clear that this, that this uh, exorcism is not the evidence of Satan's power but the evidence of Satan's binding. This exorcism is not the... They're claiming it's evidence of Satan's power. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You guys got it wrong again. It's not the evidence of Satan's power. It's the evidence of Satan's binding. Now, Satan is still active. And Satan's binding where he cannot be active on the earth doesn't take place until the his complete binding doesn't take place until the thousand years but there is an extent to which satan is bound not completely but there is an extent to which satan is bound and jesus concludes he concludes with three things he gives us an illustration an implication and an indictment jesus concludes again he's unpacking this last point jesus concludes with an illustration Look at verse 21. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. If somebody's planning on coming to rob your house this evening, he's going to have to overpower you. He's going to have to overpower you. Now if he comes to my house, he's going to have to overpower me and my guns. <laughs> you know, if, he can get, if, he can't get, if he can't get through the, the 380 then I've got the judge. And I've got the judge loaded to where it shoots bullets and then the next one's buckshot. Uh, you can do that with the judge. So i got five in there, three buckshots and two bullets. I'm going to get him some way or the other, okay? If I miss him with the bullet, the buckshot for sure is going to get him. And when you've got only one eye, you need buckshot at least in one of your bullets, okay? So I'm, he's got to overpower me. He's got to overpower what I have. And the only way he can come in while I'm there and rob my house is to overpower me. If he doesn't overpower me, he does not get to plunder my house. 
Now, it's interesting in this, this illustration. The strong man is Satan, and the robber is Jesus. You'd think it'd be turned around the other way, wouldn't you? But in this illustration, the strong man is Satan, and the robber is Jesus. Jesus has come back to claim what has been taken away from us by Satan. He comes and he binds the strong man. You remember prior to the resurrection, part one of the benefits of the resurrection? Remember scripture talks about that, that those who uh, uh, that have been released from the fear of death, that Satan would, would uh, uh, torment people because of the fear of death. We no longer, I mean, I don't want to die. I mean, I, 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 I want to live as long as I can live. And none of us, I think, want to die. But there doesn't have to be any fear in death. Because I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Bigger, I don't want to say bigger. Better, okay? Hopefully not bigger. Uh, but, but better, you know? I'm coming back better. And so, Jesus says, I'm, I'm the robber. I've come to take away from Satan what he's had. What he's gathered together. Satan is the strong man. And Jesus is the robber. That's, that's the illustration. I've come back. His exorcism proves that Satan has been bound. Satan has been bound. The implication of this illustration is stated in verse 30. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And, who, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are only two sides. There can be no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. In other words, you can't say this. I'm going to firmly plant my feet on both sides of the fence. All that does is give you splinters in places where you don't want splinters, okay? When you firmly plant your feet on both sides of the fence. You can't do that with Jesus. You can't do that with Jesus. You've got to be on one side or the other. You can't be Swiss, okay? And, and, and follow Jesus. And by that, I mean, you, you, know, you know, the Swiss are known for their neutrality, okay? You can't be Swiss and follow Jesus. You're either one side or the other. There are only two sides. Not actively choosing Jesus is by default, by default, a choice against Him. You can't say, oh, I'm neutral. Mm-mm. Jesus says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever, you can't say, well, I'm neutral. You're not with him then. You're not with him. You're against him. And he says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. You can't say I'm on break. Okay? You're either gathering with him, and if you're not gathering with him, you're scattering. You're scattering. There can be no neutrality in one's relationship to Jesus. Jesus is confronting these Pharisees once again. You're either with me or you're against me. And he's also confronting the crowd who began with, can this one, him, really, him, be the Messiah? So he lets us know it's one way or the other. And then look at verse, look at verse uh, 31. He says, therefore... Or you can translate it this way, for this reason. And, and the word therefore there indicates the relationship. 
He's going to now talk about the relationship between the impossibility of neutrality concerning Jesus and the indictment and warning. The indictment and warning. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, for this reason, since it's impossible for you to be neutral, you're either with me or you're against me. If you're not with me, you're against me. That's the default position. You have to take an active choice. I'm with him. And when you make that active choice, you're with him. If you don't make, or you can take the active choice to be against him, which the Pharisees have done. And as Jesus is addressing the crowd, they, they, can't, they can't say, hmm, I'm not sure, you know, you know, it's that old commercial, uncola nut, cola nut, which do you choose, you know? Uh, I don't know why that popped in my head, but uh, anyhow, look, Google it, okay? And you, you'll get, uh, but, but anyhow, you, you find the fact that if you don't make a choice, you've made a choice. By default, you've made the choice to be against him. Jesus makes this statement, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. These verses have been commonly referred to as the unpardonable sin. And a lot of times people have committed the unpardonable sin. But what is the unpardonable sin? In the context, it's attributing the works of Jesus to Satan rather than the Spirit, which is a rejection of Jesus. When I say that Jesus did what He did by the power of Satan, when I say that Jesus did, uh, did Jesus do what He did by the power of God, I, if I say no... I've already decided again, I'm not with him. I'm against him. In this context, attributing the works of Jesus to Satan rather than the Spirit, that's what he means by speaking against the Spirit, because Jesus did his miracles through the power of the Spirit, and they're saying he did this miracle through the power of Satan. They're attributing what Jesus did, not as divine, but demonic, attributing the works of Jesus to Satan rather than the Spirit, It's a rejection of Jesus and opposing the work of the Spirit by rejecting Jesus is the unpardonable sin. If you die without putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is no hope after death. It is possible to commit the unpardonable sin. And those who commit the unpardonable sin are those who die without submitting to the promptings of the Holy Spirit regarding the claims of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If I die, having not put my faith and trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished for me on that cross, there's no hope after. This is the life. This is the time I get to choose. After death, it's too late. It's too late after death. This is my opportunity. This is the point in my existence where I get to make a choice. And if I choose not to make a choice, I've made the choice. Because I've either got to choose to be with Him or I default to being against Him. That's the default response. I can't say, ah, I'm not really against Jesus. I'm kind of neutral. Uh Uh-uh. To be neutral is to be against Him. 
because you're not for him. You're for him or it's nothing at all. It's nothing at all. So it is possible. And I, it is possible to commit the unpardonable sin. But it's those who commit the unpardonable sin are those who die in their sins. Who die without having put their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no hope after death. None. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Because which of us know for sure that we're going to be here next Sunday? I don't mean here. I mean alive. Now, I'll be honest with you. I think I am. As far as I'm concerned, you know, same bat time, same bat channel. You know, I'm going to be here next week. But I can't be certain. How many people got up this past week, got in their cars and headed to work and didn't know as they were going to work they would die in an automobile crash? And if you don't think that happens, next time you drive down the interstate, look at the sign that says how many deaths, how many on-road deaths there have been in Texas this year. It's more than 10 a day. It's right about 10 a day. Today, 10 people will get in their automobiles thinking they're going to a certain place and they're going to arrive at that certain place at a certain time and are going to do certain things when they arrive at that certain place in a certain time. But unbeknownst to them, they're never going to get there because something is going to happen on the road. And not only are they not going to get there, their next destination is the morgue. It's the morgue. We don't know. We don't know. And that's why, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, today's the day to put your trust in Him. For believers, Jesus is bound the strong man. He's bound. Now, not completely. All you got to do is look around in this world and you see Him operating every day. But for us as believers, there is to some extent, just as the kingdom has been inaugurated, there is in some degree where the strong man has been bound. And that gives us hope. We, we, we need to make sure that we continue to share our faith and make our appeals because the strong man's been bound. The Spirit of God is able to open up hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls and show them their need of the gospel. We need to share our faith. We need to reach out to people because the strong man has been bound. The strong man has been bound. But not only that, but we need to take courage and to persevere and to keep praying. Remember, part of the model prayer is what? And deliver us from, we know, evil, but literally it's the evil one. And deliver us from the evil one. How can we pray that prayer with confidence? Why? Because Jesus has bound the strong man. And I need to recognize it's been done. And so I need to pray every day, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. Now, I don't, there's times I don't want to be delivered. Let's be honest. I like sin. So do you. And we don't want to be delivered from it. But we need to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And we can pray that prayer with confidence and pray that prayer knowing it's going to be answered because Jesus has bound the strong man. And so there's a time in all of our lives and every day throughout the week where it's time to choose up sides. We need to choose up sides. 
We either make a deliberate, a deliberate choice for Jesus, or by default, there's no such thing as being neutral. By default, we choose Satan. Because there is no neutrality. No neutrality. So today, I have to make a conscious choice to follow Jesus. If I don't, I'm going to follow the desires of my flesh. I'm going to follow the desires that the world presents before me. I'm going to listen to the siren songs of Satan and his demons. But I have to every day present myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is my reasonable act of worship. Because not to deliberately do that is to by default be against it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. We thank you for its encouragement. We thank you for its challenge and its conviction. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to recognize that it's a conscious choice that we, we need to make every, every day, sometimes every moment, in, in the heat of our, our disagreements with our spouses, as we're, or as we're dealing with difficult children or grandchildren, or as we're dealing with difficult parents, or, Father, what, what, as we're... As we're Yesterday, Lord, dealing with just a difficult individual yesterday, just rude and just just rude. Lord, we need your strength. We need your ability. We have to make the choice to follow you. Not doing so, we default. We can't be neutral. So, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us and strengthen us and guide us in this area. If there's someone here that doesn't know Christ, I pray you show them their need today. Father, we just thank you for your work of grace in our lives. We ask now your blessings upon this time as we yield ourselves to you. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as you know, we don't have an altar call, uh, but we do make an appeal. I don't know your heart this morning. And at times, I don't even know my own heart. But the one who knows me and knows my heart is, is God. Ask Him to show you your heart today. Ask Him to reveal those things in your life if you're a child of God that need to be changed. Where you're defaulting. Where you're not making the active choice to follow Jesus. To be sided with Him. And we all have those areas. And I could read you a laundry list of mine. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, cry out to Him today. Christ took your place on Calvary's cross. He took God's wrath on that cross for your sin and for my sin. And when you cry out to Him in faith and in repentance, He will save you. We're going to go to the Lord in a time of silence. Then we'll continue our time here. Let's go to the Lord in a time of silence.